Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we go to Ontario, Canada to discuss non-invasive oxygenation strategies in adults with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure in the era of COVID-19. Uh, hi, my name is Bruno Ferreiro, and I'm a PhD student in clinical epidemiology at the Institute of Health Policy Management and Evaluation at the Lalanne School of Public Health uh, here, University of Toronto. And I was also trained clinically in Buenos Aires, Argentina, in internal medicine, and I'm currently a fellow in critical care medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital in the University Health Network here in Toronto. Absolutely, pleasure to have you on the podcast with us, Bruno um, Federico. Thank you. Um, thanks, Dominique. Um, I'm Federico Andrinan, and um, I'm also a PhD student in clinical epidemiology at the IHPME here at the Dalana School of Public Health. Um, my initial training was also in internal medicine, and um, I have completed a critical care fellowship at Sunnybrook Health Sciences um, Center in Toronto, um, where I work. And um, we're also both uh, proud graduates from the ATS NECOR course. Um, um, it's nice to be here. It's an absolute pleasure to have both of you on the podcast. Uh, today we'll be discussing your really interesting paper published in the online issue of JAMA, uh, the June 4th, 2020 issue. Your paper was entitled Association of Non-Invasive Oxygenation Strategies with All-Cause Mortality in Adults with Acute Hypoxic uh, Respiratory Failure, um, and you all performed a systematic review and meta-analysis. So, Bruno, maybe you could go ahead and tell us why your group uh, performed the systematic review. Yes. So, um, first of all, this is a this is a very important clinical question that has been in our minds for some time. Um, I think we we both take care of patients with with acute respiratory failure, and frequently have to make clinical decisions regarding the use of specific non-invasive oxygenation strategies in in the early phase of acute respiratory failure. Um, so, so I would say the main reason is related to our clinical practice and came from our daily clinical practice. Um, we started thinking that it would be nice to make a systematic review summarizing all the existing evidence uh, about these uh, strategies for, for this clinical problem. And I guess one of the main limitations we found out in the literature is that um, although there were multiple systematic review and meta-analysis assessing interventions in, in acute respiratory failure, um, most of these have the have the limitation of assessing only part of the potential interventions and only uh, pairwise comparisons. So, for example, we identified multiple uh, systematic reviews and meta-analysis comparing high-flow nasal cannula with standard oxygen or non-invasive ventilation with standard oxygen, for example. But we did not find a comprehensive systematic review and meta-analysis summarizing all the potential evidence and all the potential comparisons. So, uh, conscious of that limitation, and, and I guess um, also throughout our PhD, we received some formal training in advanced uh, meta-analytic techniques like network meta-analysis. And at some point, we, we said this is an ideal design to summarize the evidence and provide estimates and pull estimates for all the potential comparisons in this in this clinical problem, and also uh, try to generate theoretical estimates for comparisons that have not been made in, in, in randomized trials, for example, uh, helmet non-invasive ventilation 
and high flow nasal cannula. Got you. And then how much did um, the recent or the, the current uh, COVID-19 pandemic factor into you uh, wanting to perform this uh, meta-analysis? Were you already uh, performing the analysis or uh, did you start it after the big attention that um, high-flow nasal cannula and non-invasive ventilation got at the beginning of the pandemic? Uh, Bruno? Uh, yes, I, I think uh, we need to be very honest and, and upfront with this. We've, we've been working on this project for more than a year now, uh, almost two years, and of course, nobody was expecting that uh, this pandemic uh, was going to arrive. So definitely our main idea was not uh, to, to provide evidence for, for COVID-19. Um, I guess at some point when we finished our paper, the, the pandemic was already here and it became important uh, to summarize the evidence regarding non-invasive oxygenation strategies. But this has not been a study conceived to answer questions uh, in the context of the pandemic. Got you. And then, Federico, from your point of view, why did you join the, the systematic review? And uh, what questions were you hoping to uh, uh, address uh, when performing this uh, um, systematic review with Bruno? So uh, I, I agree. The, I, I think, to me, the, 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 um, this was like the perfect opportunity to combine this um, um, clinical practice and, and its daily questions with epi methods. And uh, I think we both enjoy very much. And uh, I think the, the systematic review and, um, and, and its conclusions are, um, uh, are related to this, to this interaction. And um, I really think that um, it informs um, um, daily practice. And it was, it was also a, a very nice opportunity to um, further explore and learn um, the methods uh, behind the network uh, Bayesian um, systematic review. So, so that was, um, I think, those two things uh, combined. Gotcha. And then, so let's jump into how you perform this review. Um, mm -hmm. Bruno, you mentioned the fact that you uh, uh, performed a network meta-analysis. Um, so maybe I'll get Federico to answer this. Uh, Federico, maybe you can tell us what is a network meta-analysis and why you specifically used it in this um, uh, systematic review? Yeah, um, thanks. So, so we actually, so, so we performed, we started with a very extensive uh, systematic search that um, ended up with uh, 25 studies and over 3,000 um, adult patients with acute um, hypoxemic respiratory failure. And um, so we, what we um, then did was essentially reconstructed a network, including all the interventions um, not a single contrast. So, so we included the, um, the interventions such as helmet and face mask, non-invasive, high flow, and standard oxygen. And then uh, we went forward and we, we used Bayesian methods to um, derive both relative risks and absolute risk differences for all potential comparisons. The beauty of the network is that it, um, it uses both uh, direct evidence, uh, meaning evidence coming from randomized trials, um, available and indirect evidence as well as well um, from um, um, the rest of the, the, the comparisons in the network to yield um, the network estimates for effects for all potential comparisons. Um, there are a couple of differences with prior reviews that are in the um, that are that have been published um, elsewhere and. Uh, I would say that the first difference is that we included only randomized trials um, and um, no observational studies. Um, and as I said before, we took into account all the potential non-invasive strategies rather than limiting to a specific contrast 
many of the prior uh, reviews have, have focused on either the effective face mask compared to oxygen or high flow compared to oxygen. Um, and we also try to limit um, our study to adult patients with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure, um, trying to avoid the inclusion of uh, subgroups of patients that we know may have a beneficial response to non-invasive ventilation, such as uh, patients with uh, heart failure or um, COPD. Gotcha. So, Bruno, maybe you could clarify for us. So, why did you restrict specifically to randomized controlled trials, and why did you separate uh, helmet non-invasive ventilation from face mask of in, uh, non-invasive ventilation? Yeah, so... So first of all, the, the first part, why we restrict only to randomized trials, I guess we, this is a clear question of, of effectiveness, and we wanted to have the, the best evidence to assess a, a causal question about uh, interventions and patients' outcomes. And there were, I, I guess there were enough uh, randomized trials in the literature to answer this question and to combine the evidence. So we thought that including observational studies would include uh, into our conclusions, the, the potential uh, risks of, of uh, making causal inferences with observational studies, and just to keep it homogeneous and, and make more uh, strong conclusions about causal associations, we decided to only include randomized trials. The, the second part of the question of why we, uh, why we decided to split the the non-invasive ventilation based based on the interface use. Uh, I think it, it's a it's a very interesting question, and, and I think it's one of the the key um, factors that make our study different. Is uh, we have been reading a lot of literature suggesting that helmet non-invasive ventilation could have could be uh, beneficial when compared to face mask, and I guess the, there are both epidemiologic uh, randomized studies and and multiple very helpful physiologic studies. And I guess one of the main differences uh, is that helmet non-invasive ventilation seems to be able to provide uh, higher levels of PEEP uh, during longer periods of time uh, as compared to face mask non-invasive ventilation. It's, it seems to be better tolerated by the patients and there seems to be uh, less air leaks. So, so the result of that is that basically patients will receive higher PEEP uh, on higher, uh, for longer periods of time, sorry. Uh, so that that will likely lead to uh, reduced inspiratory effort, uh, reduced tidal volumes, and and subsequently uh, transpulmonary pressures, and and reduced uh, ventilatory heterogeneities. So, uh, sorry, just to close on that, uh, there's like probably the most popular study about helmet ventilation. Uh, um, published in JAMA in 2016 by Dr. Patel. Uh, basically randomized patients with helmet non-invasive ventilation versus face mask non-invasive ventilation. So we said, if a trial is doing this, then then it's uh, then we should make our systematic review uh, using these two interfaces as if they were different interventions. Gotcha. So basically, you performed the systematic review, you did a network meta-analysis, and you used four modalities, either standard oxygen, high flow nasal cannula oxygen, face mask, non-invasive ventilation, and helmet, non-invasive ventilation. So let's jump into these findings and see what you found with your network meta-analysis. So I'll start with uh, Bruno. Maybe you could go through uh, your primary findings, and then um, I'll turn over to uh, Federico. Uh, Bruno? 
Yes, so the main two outcomes that we looked at uh, was uh, all-cause mortality in 90 days and um, receipt of endotracheal intubation and invasive mechanical ventilation at 28 days. So the first important finding of our study is that when we compare uh, to standard oxygen, uh, both face mask non-invasive ventilation and helmet non-invasive ventilation uh, reduce the risk of 90-day uh, mortality. And for our secondary outcome, we show that actually the three interventions, face mask non-invasive ventilation, helmet non-invasive ventilation, and high-flow initial cannula reduce the risk of intubation when compared to standard oxygen. Um, I, I think there are a few things that need to be mentioned here. Uh, the first one is the effect estimates uh, seem to be a little bit more extreme to helmet ventilation. Um, and I think it's important to say that on top of assessing uh, or estimating the pool estimates, we also estimated the certainty in our, in our findings based on the quality of the individual studies and using the, the grade approach. And the, the certainty in the estimate for helmet ventilation was deemed to be uh, low. Um, so although the, the pool estimates are quite optimistic, we need to contextualize that in the context that we have low certainty in, in the evidence based on the, based on the quality and the size of the individual randomized trials. And, and the other thing that I, I would mention as, as an important factor is that for face mask non-invasive ventilation, the association with mortality uh, did not stand uh, across multiple sensitivity analyses. Uh, so, for example, when we used, uh, when we restricted our analysis to patients with more severe respiratory failure, uh, the effect of non-invasive, of face mask non-invasive ventilation on mortality was no longer there. Got you. And then, uh, from your side, Federico, um, what findings yeah. uh, were you impressed by? Um, so, so I, I was very impressed by the, the consistent effect of all strategies when compared to um, standard oxygen. I think that's one key finding um, of our study um, in terms of the risk of intubation. And then the, this, um, this effect uh, for both non-invasive strategies uh, in terms of uh, the risk of death, um, which I think, as Bruno said, um, uh, needs to be um, uh, assessed in the, in the face of uh, uh, the changes in the estimates of our sensitivity analysis for the face mask example. Um, we, we also did not find um, meaningful differences between the strategies in terms of ICU um, length of stay and hospital length of stay. And um, I think the other um, possibly informative uh, part of our paper is our um, analysis taking into account informative priors. Um, we had this sense that uh, some clinicians may, uh, may be more inclined to use um, high-flow um, nasal oxygen um, in comparison to face mask, and we specifically tried to address this by incorporating priors that were optimistic for the effect of high-flow um, when compared to oxygen um, and pessimistic for the effect of face mask. And um, our results um, also change under this um, um, informative assumptions. And I think um, that may be um, some grounds um, moving forward for future research. Um, under those assumptions, the effective face mask compared to uh, standard oxygen um, for mortality is no longer evident. 
and um, the effect of high flow is um, um, a little bit more marked. So how would you interpret those findings, uh, Federico? Uh, uh, would you say that uh, we should be using non-invasive a lot more frequently or sticking with the high flow? Um, that, that's a good question. I, I, I'm afraid I don't have a clear-cut answer. I, I would say that, in general, um, my take from our paper is that uh, it's very likely that, that all strategies um, are better in terms of the risk for intubation when compared to oxygen. Um, whether we need to prioritize high flow or face mask or helmet non-invasive, um, I think um, we don't have a definite answer. Um, my take on that is that we probably need some more research uh, with head-to-head comparisons to do that. Brunus, maybe you could uh, explain to us what do you think the mechanism of action or benefit is here? Why are you f- uh, finding these differences between non-invasive ventilation for helmet and face masks and high flow compared to standard oxygen therapy? Yes, so um, based on non-invasive ventilation strategies, I guess the potential uh, mechanism of, of benefit could be related with the fact that they are able to provide uh, PEEP and, and all the potential benefits that that uh, come along with PEEP, like uh, induce, uh, sorry, reduce inspiratory effort and, and potentially um, reduce transpulmonary pressure because of reduced inspiratory effort and, and reduce ventilatory heterogeneities uh, in, in patients with respiratory failure. Um, but I, but I think it's important to say that this could not be, this might not be the case, uh, for all patients and some patients, and, and this has been shown and raised, uh, concerns on patients with, uh, face mask non-invasive ventilation that, um, this might actually lead to higher tidal volumes and higher transpulmonary pressures with increased risk of intubation and mortality. And, uh, I think this is, this is one of the main messages that one of our sensitivity analysis gives. And in terms of high flow needs with Canada, I think there are, uh, there are multiple mechanisms, physiologic mechanisms of, uh, why it, uh, might provide better support than standard oxygen. Uh, one of those would be that, uh, given the high flow, it might be able to match, much better the patient's need, uh, for airflow. And there has also been some, uh, some uh, physiologic data showing that, uh, high flow needs with Canada can provide low levels of of PEEP that can have the beneficial effects that I already mentioned. So you mentioned a pretty important concern that some people have raised that when you're delivering non-invasive ventilation or high flow, we actually don't know what tidal volume patients are receiving. And we do know that patients with acute lung injury um, are at risk of uh, worsening lung injury if they receive too high a tidal volume. How do you think uh, one would be able to address that limitation Bruno, in future studies um, uh, to ensure that you're giving the right therapy and the right dose of therapy without causing further harm? Yes. So I, I think um, as a clinician, and I'm, 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 I consider myself more an epidemiologist and a physiologist, but, but we do work with lots of excellent physiologists here in Toronto. And one thing that I've learned recently is that as clinicians, we are very bad in uh, diagnosis or detecting 
increase in statutory efforts in patients under mechanical ventilation. And there, has be, there have been a lot of uh, promising techniques to measure and monitor inspiratory efforts in patients receiving invasive mechanical ventilation. But I think we are, uh, our tools for now are very poor in detecting which, which patients have a higher inspiratory effort that can lead to higher tidal volumes and higher transpulmonary pressure uh, with, need, with these non-invasive techniques. And, and sometimes like the usual, the usual things that we consider, for example, the respiratory rate or like overt work of breathing based on accessory muscles might be not very sensitive or might be very late markers of increased work of breathing, like when a patient is already using uh, accessory muscles to breathe, uh, probably that's, that's very late and maybe we should detect those patients earlier. So I think um, future research from both epidemiologic studies and, and randomized trials and physiologic studies should look with more detail in, in um, clinical tools to detect which patients are more likely to fail these techniques and and looking at markers of inspiratory effort might be might be the, the way to go. Gotcha. I think that's a really important point. Um, Federico, maybe you could comment on whether or not you're able to assess any infection risk um, with any of these modalities of treatment, because that was one concern raised with non-invasive ventilation with COVID-19 patients, whether or not uh, you may be increasing the risk of transmission. Were you able to get any data on that? No, um, no. And um, as we said before, like it's, um, um, when our paper came out, it was in the midst of the pandemic, but um, we really, and Bruno has been thinking about this for a long time, and we were not able to extract any meaningful data in terms of risk of transmission. Um, I think both from that end um, and for the potential differences that COVID patients may have, I think um, one needs to be very cautious about the extrapolation of our findings to uh, the specific COVID um, population, both in terms of the patients and the risk um, for the healthcare team as well. Um, I think we'll Maybe have more data just... soon. So maybe you could dive into those uh, limitations um, Federico, well, what limitations did you identify uh, when performing this uh, systematic review? And then um, I'll pass it on to Bruno after you. So I think that the first thing we need to consider is um, so we show pretty extreme effect estimates for the use of helmet non-invasive ventilation. And I think the first thing that uh, needs to um, come to mind is the fact that, uh, that the certainty that we had on those findings was low, um, both in terms of the number of trials and the sample size of the of uh, those trials. I think another limitation um, across all comparisons and, um, and uh, across all trials that we included was the fact that um, um, all trials have been open um, and th that's pretty evident and it may be something that we cannot uh, uh, solve, but it certainly plays, uh, might play a role in both the uh, risk of co-intervention um, and that may be differential across arms and uh, the way um, and the decision-making behind um, the intubation. Um, so I, I think both the certainty on the, on the helmet comparison, the fact that uh, all trials were um, unblinded, uh, need to be taken into account when, when one looks at our effect estimates. Um, I think another thing that we may consider is the fact that, um, as Bruno said before, face masks, um, the effect 
um, that we, um, the effects that we estimated for the face mask non-invasive ventilation strategy were not robust across um, distinct uh, sensitivity analysis. Um, and, and that may be consistent um, by the evidence showed by both the, the study by FRAT um, and, and the observational data coming from the lung safe. Um, so I, I think uh, all those things need to be um, taken into account when, when one is looking at um, our, our effects. Um, yeah. Gotcha. And Bruno, uh, what limitations uh, have we not covered as far? So I think uh, I think there are a few limitations that are uh, of course related with the with the design. So there are there are limitations that are the usual limitations that systematic reviews and meta-analysis have, and some specific met, uh, limitations of uh, network meta-analysis in particular. So um, in terms of the overall limitations, um, I think all systematic reviews and meta-analysis are vulnerable to the limitations of the individual studies included. Um, I think uh, one of the key limitations of most of the randomized trials that we included is that, of course, given the nature of interventions, none of, the, of these could be blinded. Um, so although this might not affect, uh, like the lack of blinding might not affect so much uh, the risk of mortality, although it could by co-interventions, but uh, might be less important for the outcome of mortality, we think uh, is a very important limitation for the secondary outcome of endotracheal intubation um, because it is possible that uh, physicians have different criteria for intubation um, for patients uh, assigned to, to different arms. So I think that is one of, of the key limitations that uh, downgraded the evidence and the, the rating, our rating for the evidence of most of the individual studies, not all. Um, and then, specifically about the network meta-analysis, um, we are like there is there is a big assumption when you uh, conduct a network meta-analysis that all the interventions and and protocols and populations between different studies are uh, similar. And uh, one one of the ways to kind of explore that is uh, assessing what is called incoherence. So. Basically, you try to estimate all the direct estimates that pro, uh, that come from the direct comparisons with the indirect estimates that only are constructed based on the indirect comparisons. Um, so basically, if you have different conclusions with your direct estimates and your indirect estimates, you have a problem. You have the problem of, of incoherence. So we found some incoherence specifically for the comparison between uh, face mask non-invasive ventilation and standard oxygen therapy. And um, that I think that is one of, one of the weakness of our net, network meta-analysis that the information that our analysis learned from the direct comparison between these interventions gave us somehow a different conclusion to information that the, the analysis learned from the, from the indirect comparisons. And we explore actually that, and, and it's very detailed in the supplementary appendix. And some of the factors related with this might be related with the fact that the, the FRAT study gives um, quite different uh, message compared to the to all the other small studies assessing face mask non-invasive ventilation, and also by different quality of the studies. Well, that's very important. I think I really appreciate you mentioning the importance of incoherence and 
how different study designs or implementation can affect the findings. Um, so, Bruno, maybe you could uh, give us uh, your takeaway from uh, the study. You know, how does the study advance our understanding, and what from your study could be used um, in uh, patients, uh, used by clinicians who are caring for patients with COVID-19, uh, would any of your data be able to inform the management of COVID-19? So I think um, I, I think the main, like the the main advance in understanding uh, derived by our study could be related both by the main findings and and also by some of the limitations. So as as we said earlier, it seems that in average, there seems to be a role for non-invasive oxygenation strategies to both reduce intubation and mortality in patients with acute respiratory failure. I think this is one of the key messages that, that we give, and, and we, I stress the concept of average because that doesn't mean that they work for all patients, and actually there, might, there are scenarios where, for example, face mask non-invasive ventilation might actually be harmful. Uh, but I think, in average, that's that's one of the key messages that we provide in our study. Um, I think it also provides a very uh, useful summary of all the evidence uh, coming from randomized trials assessing any of these interventions over the last 30 years. And I guess it, it, it also raises the question of uh, how the next uh, trials should be conducted and maybe... Um, mostly looking at our optimistic uh, prior analysis for high-flow uh, nasal cannula and the, the somehow extreme and encouraging estimates for helmet non-invasive ventilation, I think, raise the important question of whether we really need a trial of high-flow nasal cannula and helmet non-invasive ventilation uh, in the future, and not only a physiologic study, but also uh, ideally a, a big randomized trial um, assessing clinical important outcomes. Um, I think we need to be very careful on how this study should inform practice in the era of, of COVID-19. And I, I, I repeat that we need to be honest uh, that we did not design this study uh, to answer questions in the era of COVID. And there are important outcomes related to the safety of, of these techniques in COVID that we did not assess. Um, for example, the risk of aerosolization, droplet precautions, and overall safety. Um, but I also I also think that inevitable it's it's inevitable to to question about the, the the usefulness of at least some of our estimates in the context of acute respiratory failure. Um, so um, my institution is not using non-invasive ventilation at all during the the COVID era. So I think our study in the context of our local policies uh, might be helpful at least to know that high-flow nasal cannula might be an option that in average reduces the risk of endotracheal intubation in patients with acute respiratory failure. And I think that, for example, might be useful for, for patients with COVID-19. Um, there are also theoretical um, considerations to think that maybe helmet non-invasive ventilation uh, because of the of the helmet seal, uh, could decrease the risk of aerosolization. Um, for, uh, to my knowledge, this is only theoretical. Now, I think there are some old studies showing showing this, but they are not very conclusive. And this might this might be something that needs to be explored in the context of the pandemic. 
got you. And Federico, um, uh, what was your takeaway from the study and uh, for the practice of uh, COVID-19? Um, so, so what I really like about this is that it's a comprehensive view of the use of non-invasive strategies for um, adult patients with hypoxemic respiratory failure. I think um, it, it, it improves our intuition that uh, it's very likely that um, any non-invasive strategy will reduce the risk of intubation compared to standard oxygen. And um, it's probably also reassuring in terms of the risk of death with the use of non-invasive. Um, so, so I really like this um, comprehensive view, um, and I think it uh, it helps with um, um, daily clinical questions and and the application to the at the bedside. I think it helps. I think it also helps by pointing out um, further research in terms of the own limitations that our study has. Um, I, I think it's um, it's rather clear that uh, we need, as Bruno said, more information on the specific comparison of high flow against non-invasive strategies and likely um, considering both helmet and face mask as distinct strategies might be uh, a way to move forward. Um, and I also think um, one of our limitations points um, um, forward uh, in, in the direction of evaluating which patients uh, benefit from specific um, strategies. So um, I think this, this point that Bruno alluded once and again uh, about um, the average patient and the benefits on average um, that might not hold on specific patterns of patients that may benefit from um, from another strategy, uh, for instance, the, the effect um, of non-invasive in patients with higher than, than expected tidal volumes or high transpulmonary pressures. I think uh, both, both two things um, are ways moving forward. Um, and, and in terms of COVID, I think um, I agree fully with, with, with what Bruno said before. Um, I, I think in my own clinical practice, um, this may be reassuring in terms of uh, clinically meaningful outcomes, although I have the concern that um, to begin with, we, we didn't include, like the trials did not include any COVID patients. Um, and second, uh, we don't have any definite information in terms of the safety uh, of the non-invasive techniques in terms of aerosolization and um and the and the infection uh, risk for the the allied and the healthcare team and, and other patients gotcha well uh, i want to thank both of you for a really great podcast um uh, as we draw to the end of this podcast um i just want to give the last word to bruno um uh, in any take home messages uh, for uh, the audience, and anything that we haven't covered in this podcast um, that you prepared for that you think our audience should know. I'll give you the final word, Bruno. Thank you. Uh, no, so I, I just wanted to say thanks uh, for inviting us to speak. I think we, we already spoke a lot. Um, and and I guess uh, the key message of, of our study is that there seems to be a role for different non-invasive oxygenation techniques. Uh, there with this information, there is still a big step that you still need to make at the bedside as to as to select which patient is more likely to benefit from each of its uh, each strategy, uh, knowing that one size does not fit all, and that that uh, by no means any of these interventions should delay timely intubation when the patient is clearly failing and needs to be intubated.
That's a very important message. Uh, thank you very much, Bruno. Thank you, Federico. An absolute pleasure to have both of you on this podcast. Uh, today we discussed your JAMA article, which was published online, uh, the June 4th, 2020 issue, about uh, non-invasive oxygenation strategies and all-cause mortality. Thank you very much. You all have a great day. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you. A big thank you to Drs. Ferrero and Angriman, and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominique Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.